the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects in particular, are exposed to others. And yet, wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it instead of being uh, repelled from God to see that that God died for us while we were yet sinners, understands us and who we are in all of our defects, and and rather than, than allowing shame to to repel us from God, to rather propel us to God? How do we make that happen, though? Well, it's a great question, and I think fortunately we have uh, a very helpful model for us when we look in the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, when we uh, read about the reinstatement of Peter. It's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with, in which Peter, after the resurrection, and of course after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. And of course this dialogue leads to Peter, and at one point uh, says that, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? I think for me this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus kind of, uh, one one, one can imagine uh, without, of course, having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the Gospel around this story, one could imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is. And it's also interesting to me that Jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with Peter. It would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people. And what's striking also is that Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned. There's not going to be any shame left in Peter that, that Jesus is going to allow for. And so he actually has a real encounter with Peter, asking him to really explore this issue. Do you really love me? Now, if it's me, there is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering, well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep. And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus. He said, hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, I was crucified, we're cool about that. 
No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture, and so forth. But it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done, and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote-unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed. The possibility for creating new neural networks that we, in, in which we experience real release, in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him, and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this, uh, this uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience that reinforces the very things that we read about in the Scriptures, and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about what it means to live as, as part of the body of Christ. So when we're exhorted in Scripture to confess our sins to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ, that there is that sense of, I think what you're suggesting here, that dynamic that's taking place that, that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame, as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that, 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 um, that horizontal-level connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to experience what it's like to be forgiven. That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another. And a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles, in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable, to be naked, and yet not, shame ha- not let shame have the talking stick in this space. We, in, in the book, we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, in which we read, therefore, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, 
Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him. He went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame. Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, we find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful influence in our lives. So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves, where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that, uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God, uh, that damaged view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can... Um, bring about not just the the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system that tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Newly published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I had a friend when I was growing up in... um, high school days and was involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And this guy was a great believer, really had a heart for the Lord, uh, was found faithfully in church on every Sunday, uh, had a voracious uh, desire and appetite for the Word. Every time there was a prayer opportunity, a prayer meeting, something of that sort, he was there. He was just one of those really faithful guys. And yet, in the entire time that I knew him, I recognized that this guy dealt with a degree of shame. Now, in his case, the shame wasn't necessarily because of anything that he had done or failed to do, but you see, he came from a household where his mother had died years before when he was younger, leaving the surviving parent, his father, with himself, a younger brother, a younger sister. Uh, Dad was kind of a rough-and-tumble kind of character, uh, had been a truck driver, inconsistent when it came to work, so... The house wasn't in a very nice neighborhood. The lawns were never well kept. The house was never well maintained. The kids were never well dressed nor never well fed. Though they were all decent human beings, there always seemed to be kind of this cloud of shame that this friend of mine carried, even as a believer, uh, because he couldn't invite people over to his home. He felt embarrassed at times because his father, being kind of the rough-and-tumble guy, would use uh, foul language and things of that sort, so there was a degree of embarrassment. And um, I always wondered, boy, what kind of a cross is that for us to bear as believers when sometimes we deal 
with the the pain of worthlessness or rejection or just downright shame. Well, my guest tonight has written a book that tackles this very issue. Uh, down through the years, he's authored quite a number of best-selling books, uh, including When People Are Big and God is Small, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, Depression, Stubborn Darkness, many others, including his latest book entitled simply Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And Ed Welsh, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, yeah, great to be with you, too. I really, uh, really enjoy thinking about this particular topic, and um, I'm looking forward to our time together. You mentioned to our listeners that you are a licensed uh, psychologist and faculty member of the um, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, a highly respected organization, and you've, you've tackled an issue here that kind of kind of rides down below the surface, I think, in the lives of a lot of believers for different reasons. Now, I shared at my opening remarks the, the shame, the sense of shame that this friend of mine had for so long, that sent, that kind of foreboding sense of, 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 of guilt about this and never knowing quite what to do. I mean, is this something that we need to maybe right out the gate differentiate between guilt and shame or the sense that we'll get under some some circumstances of conviction of the Holy Spirit? Kind of delineate that for us. If yeah, you would, I, I think that's an important one, but let me go, let me go back a little bit. You're, you're, you're wrestling with the question, how, how big is this issue? And, and if we go to Scripture, it, it's, it seems to advertise shame is, in, in many ways, the, the premier human struggle. You know, so, you know, you have Genesis. They were naked and without shame. Well, that's just... You know, it's like a it's like a, the, the story being given away right at the beginning, where you know it's setting us up to see okay. Then they were naked and with shame, and and really the entire Bible becomes a, a, a wrestling with this question: What do I do with this sense of shame? So I, I think you're you're saying something very very important at the outset with your illustration. Well, here's a guy who was struggling with it, but if if Scripture is true. What we'd expect is that we're going to find we're going to find touches of this in every single person, and and some of those words you used to describe shame, they boy, I would imagine just about every American would say them. I feel like a failure sometimes. I feel worthless. Who hasn't who hasn't said that? Um, I feel unlovable. Uh, and but here's here's the sort of the twist that shame gives unlovable. Uh, I'm unlovable, but other people aren't. You know, other people are lovable. But I'm not lovable. There's something, there's something especially not quite right about me. That's, un, it's under those experiences that we find this this thing that Scripture calls shame. And as you point out, this is something that we really have struggled with since the beginning of mankind. I mean, we, we've got that illustration very early in the garden uh, with the creation of mankind. There he was, there she was, in our in our uh, complete glory. Uh, there was never any sense of guilt or shame uh, until then, of course, uh, of the eating of the knowledge of the tree of, of good and evil. And suddenly, man in his nakedness went from that state of being without shame to suddenly burdened down with shame. And this is something that, of course, is, has followed us to one degree or another ever since. And and if we if we follow the, the storyline in those first chapters of Genesis, we find this this very concise picture of shame, and it seems to revolve around a triad of three things. Well, first of all, you feel naked, obviously. You, you feel exposed. You feel like you are being seen. Somebody, others can see you, and you're not quite right. That would be one experience of it. You just feel exposed. 
Uh, second is, and you, you find this in the Genesis story, you feel like an outcast. You feel like you don't belong anymore. And I would say that that's, in many ways, that's really the key experience. There's something about you that you don't fit in. And I can remember one, uh, this, this, this moment I had in high school where, of course, I, like everybody else in high school, felt like I never fit in. But then I'd have these conversations with my friends, and I found these guys who were, you know, you know great guys who, who just seemed like they had everything. They didn't feel like they fit in. You know, you begin to realize, does anybody feel like they belong? And it's an elusive human experience. The other part of the experience is you feel unclean. There's something dirty about you. And, and Craig, I think that's where that link between guilt and shame can get a little fuzzy, where, okay, you feel dirty, you feel bad. Well, I think, I think many of us have this instinct that if we feel bad, it means we've done something bad, we've done something wrong, and, and we, we tend to look for something to confess. And, and certainly shame can occasionally be because we have done something we feel like is so wrong. It's, it's a different kind of sin or a different kind of wrong than other people have committed. And so there's that sense we, you know, well, for example, I, I uh, drove to work today and I expect if today wasn't like any other day, I rolled through a stop sign or two. And, and is that breaking the law? And I'm not trying to say I'm proud of it, but, but I'm willing to acknowledge it because I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hoping <laughs> that, that you rolled through a stop sign today too. And, and, and so you're, you're shaking your head and say, yeah, 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 I'm with you. I know, I know what you're talking about. But there, there are other kinds of wrongs that we could talk about where nobody's shaking their head. They're just sort of looking at us. So occasionally, the, the bad that we feel is a result of, of what we've done. We just feel like what we've done is very different and, and more disgraceful than anything anybody else has done. The other, the larger part of shame, which you've already spoken about, is, is we feel bad, we feel unclean, but it's, it, you, can, you can confess all day and it's not going to make any difference. Um, it's because we are associated with things or people that have done unclean things to us. And, and certainly, you know, you, you've mentioned one, just associations with poverty and not having anything. Well, there's the literal sense of feeling worthless and not fitting in. The, the other illustrations that, that probably most of us would immediately think of would be some kind of sexual violation where you have been, it's not what you've done. You feel, obviously, you feel dirty, but you can't confess that dirtiness because it's a dirtiness that somebody else has thrown on you or somebody who's been divorced. Um, the same thing. If they were on the bad end of, the, of divorce where, where the spouse left them, there, there's a sense that there's something wrong with me. There's something bad about me. And it's not because of what they've done. It's because of what has been done to them. So, so shame really is the much larger struggle if, uh, than guilt. Guilt can be one part of shame, but shame is a much, much wider experience. Tackling the topic today as we're joined by best-selling author Edward Welsh, a look at Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with best-selling author Ed Welsh. He is a licensed psychologist and faculty member at the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And uh, amongst the number of titles that he's written down through the years, his latest, Shame Interrupted, 
how God lifts the pain of worthlessness and rejection. Let's um, maybe kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic, Ed, as we help folks understand sometimes the difference between what maybe can be good shame in letting us know, and maybe I'm not using the right phraseology here, but letting us know that there's something amiss in our lives that we need to address versus the kind of shame that's kind of brought upon us typically by circumstances that oftentimes are either outside of our control or, or, or had nothing to do with our own actions. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I guess I guess I tend to think about it this way. I think of of guilt has a bit more benefits than shame. <laughs> where where guilt, you know, our conscience can remind us, hey, I did wrong, and it's time for confession. Shame is it, it tends to be much more renegade, and and I I I don't find really that often in scripture. Occasionally you find it. Um, but but very infrequently do you find in Scripture the encouragement for people to experience shame. There were times where Israel was just completely hard-hearted, and and, and the Lord essentially says, "Shame on you! Uh, you you have you have no shame anymore." But but when 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 I see the Lord dealing with individual people, especially when we race up to the New Testament and see Jesus in action, all we see is just this incredible compassion for those who wrestle with shame. So. So I, I think the scripture is much more interested in that question. Okay, here's this here's this soul deadening struggle that human beings can have. What is the way through it? Working through that is is a process, isn't it? And it's a process that can be different for everybody. And and I would imagine a lot of it comes down to flipping the the perspective in other words oftentimes that shame is based on how we perceive others and how they perceive us do we then have to kind of move beyond that to begin to see the way god perceives us yeah boy absolutely i think you you just you just hit hit on something very important that 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 you know i want to learn of these things as we're speaking as well and and is as we understand the way God works, it's not, oh, oh, all of a sudden, in a half hour, we're going to be free of shame. It's, it's what we're, you know, what we're looking for is just maybe just a little glimmer, you know, just something that, 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 that approximates hope, okay? And just something that surprises us a little bit, where we say, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting our God, the holy God, to have this kind of concern for, for outcasts. That's, that's what we're looking for, just in, a, in one sense to be intrigued by a God who doesn't, who doesn't conform to our expectations. And, and one of the things you said when you talked about the phone lines being down is, is probably relevant to right now, too, where in a sense what the Lord says, I think, is, is, is listen, okay? Just, just sit down and, and listen, and, which is so unusual. For, that, that's surprising in and of itself. For people who wrestle with shame, they feel like they have to do something. They have to wash themselves more. They have to, they have to somehow be a, fail, a, a success before they're able to, to be able to appear before God and other people. But, but what you have in Scripture is a God who says, listen, listen to, listen to stories of people who experience shame and watch, watch my affection for them. And and then story after story in Scripture, that's, that's what we receive. You know, what struck me so interesting, going back to my, my central example earlier on of this friend of mine who had grown up in, you know, less than ideal circumstances, I, I always took note of the fact, Ed, that here was someone who, because he was not a person of, of great wealth or of status, had a very easy time in showing a sense of compassion 
toward others. Mm. Uh, here was someone who would volunteer during the holidays at a soup kitchen to help feed the needy during Thanksgiving and give, giving and Christmas and so forth, um, who, even though he had limited means, uh, was someone who tithed frequently, was, was eager to do something to help somebody else mm. out who was in need. His His own life experience gave him the ability to see need in others, and yet when he turned that mirror on himself, yep. he saw someone that was a loser, who was worthless, who didn't feel comfortable going to certain events because he couldn't dress as nice as the others. It's yeah, amazing how it, there was a degree it. to which the shame taught him things about others that enabled him to become more understanding, more caring, more compassionate, and yet as much as it benefited him to a degree in that sense, mm-hmm. never benefited his own viewpoint of himself. But it's a, it's a good starting point, what you're saying, where, where, where people who struggle with shame, you know, it, maybe we could put it this way, an outcast can recognize other outcasts. Mm, okay. they, they have keen eyes for other outcasts. And, and, and that seems to be the story of the New Testament, where here comes, here comes the king, and, and you know, he's, you know, his birth is announced with angels and prophecies, but but if you're an outcast and you start reading through the very beginning of the New Testament, what you say is, hold it, here's, I recognize this guy, okay? He doesn't belong either. He's on the outs as well. Here's a per. I recognize him. Is it possible that he might even recognize me? And, and, and then the, the, the greatest indignity, they go down to Egypt. It's, you know, you know, Egypt is just a horrifying thing for a Jew. That's, you know, that's where they were enslaved. And and so he spends a, a couple early years in Egypt. You know, episode after episode, you look at you look at the Messiah, and, and and an outcast is able to spot Jesus better than anybody else because he is like them. And then then when you then when you watch his ministry take shape, it's it, it's the most peculiar thing. I mean, if you want to have a reputation, you go among the movers and the shakers and the influencers. And, and, and Jesus was immediately on the outs, and he was on the outs with the mover and shakers because, here, you, know, you remember that original complaint, hey, he can't be one of us because he eats with sinners mm-hmm. and, and tax collectors. He, he eats with people who are on the outs. He eats with the unclean, which makes him unclean himself. And, and that, was, that was the original rap against Jesus, that he associates himself with the outcast. And, and so, you know, to, to use your friend as the illustration, what we're, you know, what we're doing is, okay, you got it. You recognize another outcast. So watch him. Watch, you know, watch him walk through life. Now, now notice this. Do you see that that outcast, Jesus Christ, he makes a beeline toward you? Okay. And and most people who really wrestle with shame is sort of their full time job. They they don't believe it. And and I think well, you know, the, the scripture goes on and says, well, let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more. But at some point, I think those who wrestle wrestle with shame, they they're going to have to do something. So in in a sense, the Lord says, hear the stories, just listen. And then He says, okay, now respond. And and the response can be as simple as. Amen. Okay, Lord, I believe. <laughs> I believe you even pursue me as an outcast. I believe that you, and here's, here's a term that Scripture uses, you turn your face to me. And when somebody turns their face to you, it's this, 
It's a sign that you belong to them. It's a sign of their pleasure and their goodwill toward you. At some point, those who wrestle with shame, they're going to have to not only hear these beautiful words, but they're going to have to say, yes, I believe them. I believe that they're words that, that, that the Lord says to me. We're so comfortable sometimes living in kind of that pain because it's something that's very familiar, that sense of worthlessness and inferiority or living with rejection, humiliation, failure. And certainly a lot of people these days in light of what's transpired in the economy, uh, people who have worked hard at their career um, and achieved a modicum of success and then suddenly because of no fault of their own, lost a job, lost a home, have not been able to regain employment and they're walking around with that sense of shame. Let's talk about that angle when we come back. And turning about perspective on this topic, uh, seeing this as God sees us, seeing ourselves as God sees us. Shame interrupted. Best-selling author Edward Welch with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've got best-selling author with us today, Ed Welsh. His latest book is called Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Got a number of best-selling books to his credit. He also serves as a licensed psychologist and faculty member at the notable Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Been dealing with this topic, and you know, if you're someone who walks around, who lives with, who is an intimate of shame, that sense of rejection and worthlessness and weakness, humiliation, failure. And boy, certainly that that sense of failure, I think, is something that so many people these days, Ed, in the wake of what's been going on with the economic decline, have really had to struggle with. What kind of advice, what kind of insight can you offer to somebody who's who's walking around with that kind of shame, lost the job, lost the house, they feel like they're failure at caring for their family, and yet what do they do? Uh, there's... There's nothing unique to this particular era in how we measure who we are by how much we make. And 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 I don't live in the Bay Area, but but I would think that it would be only be more obvious in in the Bay Area. There's nothing unique to that because I think you found the same thing in the New Testament. And because the you know the poor they were they were the ones who were literally were worthless. Um, and you know that's that's you know, a prominent way we measure our worth. What's our income? What's the status of our job? And and, and so I think there there are a couple of things that that Scripture does, what the, the Jesus does. The the first thing is he says, hey, this is not a mirage. It's not simply you love money so much and you love your reputation. Uh, Jesus is is acknowledging that poverty and and financial difficulties are truly hard thing. And the hard things that, that 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 can be experienced shamefully before the community, and and then you keep your eyes open in the scripture, and and so here, Matthew chapter five, for example, it's you know one of one of the the early discourses that that we have from Jesus, and here's how it starts: <laughs> you know, Blessed are the poor, mm. blessed are the poor. Now now that's not going to make people out of a job feel really you know real, real nice all of a sudden. But it, it, it should capture our attention just a little bit, <laughs> where once again, it's as, if, it's as if Jesus is aiming for the outcast and the shamed. That's, they are his people. And, and so, so it's very intentional that he starts out the Beatitudes 
by saying, blessed are the poor. He's, he's showing how things are not the way they seem, that those who are outcast, are, those are the people of the living God. They are the ones who belong ultimately to the king. And, and what does he say? I think that's the one where he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven. And again, it's you know, like you said earlier, this is a process. Um, and, and nobody's going to go away saying, oh, this is, okay, great, my shame is all done now, and I, I feel fine about not having work. It, it's is one of the big um, wedges, though, that we need to address here is to understand that in this process, ultimately, um, without regard to what the source might be of our shame, sometimes it's controllable, a lot of times it isn't, to mm-hmm. ultimately understand that each and every one of us were bought with a price and that there is much that can be said about that, um, that ultimate and enormous Christ, uh, sacrifice that Christ paid for us. Uh, so that in and through that sacrifice, that 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 enormous pearl of great price, as Scripture says, uh, we can learn to 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 see our identity as He sees our identity, and be able to shed that sense of shame after a while. I, I think what we're saying is that we we tend to think that the work of Christ on the cross is for forgiveness of sins in the narrowest sense, but. But you know, here's the problem: you go into the courtroom, and and the judge says you're you're not guilty, and you're forgiven. You leave the courtroom, and you still feel disgusting. Well, it, you know, in some ways, the the verdict doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You feel you still feel like a disgrace. I, I think what we're what we're what we're moving toward is what happened at the cross is much bigger than we will ever ever imagine. And and in in that forgiveness of sins, we have been given Christ Himself. And 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 and. And we and and here's shame is about associations. Are you associated with your poverty? Are you associated with the person who abused you? Uh, are you associated with your sins? Well, what what Jesus does at the cross is he is he snips all those old associations and he says you are you are now associated with me. And and so you know there's that, that wonderful passage in Peter. You are chosen. This is these are all words specifically to those who wrestle with shame. A chosen people, you're chosen. Okay. A royal priesthood, you're rich. Uh, a holy nation, you're, 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 you're even more than clean, you're holy. And then that, that, that thing that Peter says, a people belonging to God, a people belonging to God. That's all part of the package of, of the gospel of Christ. The, the gospel is for our guilt and the gospel is for our shame. Isn't it interesting, too, I think of that passage, the, the people belonging to God, people that God calls having been set apart. So often we think of ourselves in the negative sense of having been set apart as being an outcast um, and so forth, and yet to understand that there is another type of being set apart, called by his name, paid for by his blood, where now all of a sudden we can understand that that being somebody different than the rest can actually be something very special. It's it, 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 it's it's amazing the way the scripture uses the same kind of words. Um, yeah, you're set apart. Now it's a set apart like you're okay. You're on the traveling baseball team. <laughs> now you're set apart. You're you're in this elite organization. Now you're set apart where you are absol- You are the one who is known by name by the king. So. So it's a set apart, but it's a set apart that warms our soul and and says that we you know that here's here, here this seems to be the very hub of scripture where where the Lord says to us in Christ, "I am yours and you are mine. We are pe- people belonging to God. That's what we're set apart for. 
Ultimately, Ed, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. For those that have been eavesdropping on our conversation this afternoon that say, boy, you guys have really nailed it, you are articulating exactly where I'm at, how do I begin getting on this road to understand that I can go from that sense of being an outsider, an outcast, to understanding what it means to take on the mantle of being set apart in his name? How does that process begin? I, I hate to seem self-aggrandizing and, and, and talking about my own book, but but that shame interrupted book is it's, it's really looking at it's basically just looking at scripture, but looking at it through the question, what do I do with my shame, and, and just watching these beautiful words unfold. So, so so that you know that can be sort of a, a coach, a friend, if you will just to help people have eyes to see how Scripture does speak to shame over and over again. And, 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 and once, you, once you see it, once you're able to see those beautiful words, then you don't need the help as much, and you can just jump into Scripture and see them. But going back to, I think, what you said earlier, it's just allow that little, little nugget of hope to just settle in, okay? that, that maybe our God says things to our sense of disgrace and worthlessness, that is much more than we ever imagined before, just to have that hope. That's what a great place to start that would be. Indeed so. And, and hope is, I think, an, an internal and, incorpor- and important word uh, that can be a central starting point of our focus. You know, when blame shows up on the doorstep, uh, we're having that sense of shame. Uh, we feel like we're worthless. We've been rejected. We're outcast. Um, to begin to incorporate God's viewpoint on who we are, uh, and to begin to see ourselves, not necessarily through how we perceive others see us, but rather how we should understand God sees us, is the important difference when it comes to shame interrupted. The new book, by the way, which, as we mentioned before, um, is uh, published by New Growth Press, and uh, you can get more information online at newgrowthpressbookstore.com or through any Bay Area bookstore. And our thanks to best-selling author Ed Welsh for being with us tonight here Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.